Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Antiwar.com has a piece entitled Lithuanians Stick New Finger in Eye of Russian Bear. Lithuania is trying to create new, quote, facts on the ground, end quote, hoping to provoke the kind of response from Russia that will determine tone and substance of the important NATO summit scheduled for June 28th to 30th in Madrid. Will this work? Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He works with Tell the Word, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. His 27-year career as a CIA analyst includes serving as a chief of the Soviet foreign policy branch and preparer briefer of the president's daily brief. He is co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, and he's the author of this piece. Ray McGovern, as always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. So you opened by saying on June 17th, the Lithuanians announced they were banning the rail transit of goods through Lithuania to the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. The ban went into effect on June 18th, sandwiched between EU and NATO members Poland and Lithuania. Kaliningrad received supplies from Russia via rail and gas pipelines through Lithuania, including goods sanctioned by the EU. Your thoughts on this move, Ray McGovern, how dangerous of a move is this? Yeah, it's in reality a pinprick, but it has dangerous implications. Uh, The NATO summit is coming up in just uh, um, a week, actually. And uh, the the challenge here is to figure out whether it's going to be a disruptive move or whether it would be a, a something that would consolidate them toward a even more aggressive posture toward Russia. Um, in in fact, uh, the Russians have already indicated that they're going to uh, reply proportionately. Now, what does that mean? Um, I would not expect them to blow up any part of Lithuania, but I think they would guard against the Lithuanians mounting the kind of uh, false flag attack that would, by which they would try to make it appear to be so that the Russians had now, quote, retaliated, end quote, uh, with, armed, uh, w- with an armed strike on Lithuania. Now, if you broaden this thing out to a discussion of NATO, uh, you're you're the German Chancellor or you're the President of, of France. Do you want to be put in the position of having to defend Lithuania for starting this fracas uh, from Russia? Uh, let's say Lithuania wants to invoke uh, Article Five of the NATO Charter, which pretty much says uh, one is attacked, the all should be considered attacked. Uh, I think that this can be a very divisive thing in Europe. And so I think the Russians will probably be very circumspect for the nonce, at least for the next week, on how they react. If they react, there'll be a proportionate react. 
uh, reaction that's it's not like blockading the uh, corridors into Berlin. And so uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. My point is that this NATO meeting is all important. Uh, it may be, in my view, the last NATO summit, uh, because NATO is about to fall apart, in my view, under the impact of what the sanctions led by the U.S. are doing to the European economies. And uh, looking at the, the Russian gains in Ukraine, uh, whether NATO, the more mature members of NATO, want this to continue to the last Ukrainian, so to speak, or whether they want it to end, and with that, end the sanctions. You know, Ray, it's interesting you say that, um, because... Uh, you know, I was been we've been covering what's going on in Europe, and one of them is Brussels. There's seventy thousand people in the street screaming, um, you know, up against NATO. They're literally saying, "Stop NATO!" Right? We've got uh, the UK people in the street screaming over prices. So, to some extent, if I am the Russians right now, or the Chinese, whoever, and I'm sitting here watching NATO disintegrate because they're full of their foolish economic sanctions and considering a seventh round of sanctions, I don't need to be baited into doing anything for them. Time is on my side. I can sit, aside, sit on the side and watch them, you know, fall apart. And, uh, you know, it's almost like they're trying to bait Russia into doing something when Russia doesn't need to do anything. Russia doesn't even need to sanction them. They've sanctioned themselves. Right. That is the way things look. And uh, as I point out in the article, uh, they are convening at precisely the same time that Russia will complete the takeover of the entire territory of Donbass. Uh, and that's a biggie. In other words, the, the Russians will have won on the ground, at least to the point where they have consolidated their gains. And uh, the question really will be before the, the NATO people, well, what do we do now? Uh, do we send more arms in to prolong this thing? Or do we lean on Zelensky and say, look, uh, you got to stop this. This is, this is doing nobody any good, least of all us Europeans who are really, really suffering now or beginning to suffer now under the sanctions. And uh, there's a run on blankets in all these stores because everybody's afraid of how they're going to uh, get warm this coming winter without Russian gas. So uh, things are beginning to happen. They happen slowly. But this meeting just next week is key. Ironically, um, 25 years ago, uh, the NATO summiteers, the, the presidents of NATO, met again in Madrid. That's where they're meeting in a week. Now, what happened then? Well, that was the first time that the West, really the U.S., broke its promise to Russia's president Gorbachev when they told him in February 2000, I'm sorry, February 1990, that uh, NATO would not move one inch to the east toward, toward Russia. Well, we all know the sad story that NATO has doubled in size and all those new all those new countries are to the east of the East German border. So that was a violation of the promise. So the point is that this is the first NATO summit in 25 years ago when this was done. It was done in Madrid and it allowed the Czech Republic, Poland and Hungary to get into the into NATO despite our promise not to do that. So now we're coming full circle. It's 25 years later. 
Finland, uh, Sweden uh, are hell bent to to join NATO. Well, let them in. Okay, sure. Uh, Putin has said doesn't doesn't bother me unless, and this is a big unless, unless NATO infrastructure starts to be in place in places like Finland. That means medium range ballistic missiles. That's what he's really scared about in Poland. They're already in Romania, and he wanted to keep them out of Ukraine. I think he has successfully done the, the, the latter. So um, here we come full circle. 25 years later, you let Finland and Sweden in, if, if you're able to persuade the Turks to do that, bribe them with whatever they need. Uh, then you have an even larger NATO that's going to really crumble uh, when the, the two ports of NATO uh, are at loggerheads, namely people like the Lithuanians, the Polands, want to up the ante in Ukraine. They want to stick their both fingers in both eyes of the Russian bear. The Germans, the French, the, the Italians, others who are a little bit more seasoned and a little bit less aggressive would like the thing to stop. So we're going to see a Donnybrook at uh, Madrid in just a week, uh, unless the U.S orchestrates the whole thing as it has in the past. I talk about lemmings in, in, my, <laughs> in my piece here. Mm -hmm. That's what it's always been, a lemming performance, people taking their orders, uh, their dancing instructions from the U.S. Jen Stoltenberg, the, the head of NATO, said last, late last week that this is going to be a protracted conflict. And most people, I think, interpreted that to mean within the boundaries or borders of the Ukraine. Does this Lithuanian fiasco make you wonder if Stoltenberg was really talking about this expanding, this conflagration expanding beyond Ukraine? That's a really good question. I hadn't thought about that, uh, but I think that Stoltenberg taking his uh, rhetoric from, from Washington uh, probably is, is uh, not quite there yet. Okay. Uh, I don't think anyone expected the Lithuanians to do this. Matter of fact, one question is whether they tipped the U.S. To, off uh, to it in the first place. The Russians will assume that they did. Um, the thing that I object to, and, and that's, that's what's going on here, the whole idea of running a war of attrition, okay, Attrition, just so they're like World War One, for God's sake. Uh, by the by, NATO and the U.S. and Ukraine uh, fighting till till all Ukrainian people are 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 harmed. Half of them are already. We can stop this. We have the power to stop it. Biden has the power to stop it. But the, his advisors and perhaps Biden himself see more merit in what they see as a, a challenge to Russia and bleeding the Russians uh, white from their ammunition, which of course won't quit. So the thing will drag on. And when Stoltenberg says it's going to drag on for months or years, uh, he's hearing that from Washington. That is very, very regrettable. And I think the other part of it is when you look at their plan, the Russian economy seems to be, granted, it's taking some hits, but to be quite frank, it seems that the Russian economy is more stable than the European economy, while who knows how long the U.S. empire may be able to drag on the war. It's certainly, I don't know how long, but 
it doesn't seem to me as though the economic hit is going to be that, you know, you're going to be able to maintain a peaceful a society uh, when people as are as angry as they appear to be getting in Europe and ultimately here. It's the same thing's going to happen, Ray. If what you're saying is that uh, I think the Russians are are going to be spared of that kind of unrest, I think you're right. Uh, they've been preparing for this for a long time. Uh, they have other places to go. And what, never, what people never think of is China. Uh, China is backing Russia in a way that no one really expected, uh, not, not me even, uh, although I pointed to the closeness of their relationship. Xi has blessed this invasion. Let's face it, he has. And he's supporting the Russians tooth and nail. So uh, the Russians have places to go. Uh, they're, uh, they're making money hand over fist on selling oil to various and sundry. Uh, it almost appears as though the economic advisors for Biden are as uh, dim-witted, let's put it that way, as his foreign policy advisors and his military advisors. It is really hard to understand how the U.S. could have been feeding the media on the notion that the Ukrainians want to defeat Russia in Ukraine. Didn't make any sense from the get-go. And of course, it's not making sense now. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Folks, you can find his piece at uh, antiwar.com. It's entitled Lithuanians Stick New Finger in Eye of Russian Bear. Ray McGovern, enjoy your day. Thank you. We look forward to having you back. Most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Protesters chant, stop NATO, at massive rally in heart of the EU. Tens of thousands demonstrated against the rising cost of living, with many linking the crisis to the West's Russia policies. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with the U.S. policies and the EU's blind support of them, and that's not being shown on our domestic TV channels. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economic Association. He is Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you, sir. So a trade union organized protest numbering between 70 to 80,000 demonstrators packed the streets of Brussels yesterday, bringing the city to a standstill. In addition to expressing anger at the rising cost of living in Belgium, many condemned the U.S.-led NATO alliance and its involvement in the Ukrainian conflict. Dr. Tahid, this can't last much longer. I, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, Brussels, of course, is the headquarters for NATO and the EU. And so I don't know if this is Brussels citizens or persons coming from elsewhere in the EU, but, but it is, I think, the beginning of, a, of, a, of what will be a growing protest, uh, not only in Brussels, but, but across the EU, to uh, inflation and 
the um, uh, the Russian sanctions and then p- perhaps NATO support support for Ukraine. Um, these things are all connected, of course. Uh, inflation in in Brussels in Belgium is running at nine uh, percent, which is probably uh, going to be uh, about standard uh, for 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 all of Europe. Uh, inflation in in uh, England is running at eleven percent, though. And uh, we had a um, estimated eighty thousand persons. That's estimated by the protesters. And I thought it was interesting that the police estimated <laughs> it at seventy thousand. Right, right. Which 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 you know doesn't make a difference. It's not like the U.S. where Protesters say they have a million, and the police say, "Well, it was only a couple, couple people." You know, what's ten thousand people amongst friends? Yes, yes. And so uh, they they were accurate in in uh, you know uh, Europeans respond to public protests very differently. They take they take them very seriously. You know, the other thing that I, I think that's interesting um, is this happening at the same time there's this major rail strike in the UK. And one of the things I've been reading that a lot of people are saying salaries, we need salary hikes, our salary isn't keeping up. And my thought is your salary ain't the problem. (laughs) Your salary is being passed by something that um, is being passed by inflation. They interpret it as being their salaries because that's the way it feels. But that's not actually the issue, is it? No, it's not the issue because actually, in, in right now, an increase in salary and tax cuts, which protesters are asking for in, in, in Brussels, would actually worsen inflation. You'll, you know, right now we don't have what we call wage push inflation. Uh, and wages have been going up, so it's not wages that's causing the inflation. We talked about this many times. It's a supply problem. There is there is not enough stuff being produced or, or delivered into, into economies from, from the globalization. And so uh, just increasing salaries is actually going to make inflation worse. Now, I think they will uh, you, you know, see this uh, eventually. Uh, it is certainly the supply-drivenness of this inflation around the world is being talked about. And if they do that, then it being a supply problem puts the, the, the attention back on the sanctions against against uh, Russia, uh, back on NATO, they're doing both of these. But I think the focus, when it when it shifts more to NATO, gives them an actual way of of, of, of ha- handling this inflation by increasing increasing the supply and not sanctioning uh, goods from Russia, which is backfired on on the EU and and on, on the US as well. There are a couple of things with this Brussels story that I found very interesting. One, they say in addition to packing the streets, the protests led to mass cancellations of flights at Brussels airport as unions representing security personnel went on strike. Public transit routes around the city were also operating at drastically reduced capacity. So that this was showing, demonstrating to me the power that unions have as a as a they seem to be much more powerful there uh, than they are here and then it in in uh, one more point and and then uh I'll ask you to respond inflation hit 9% in Belgium in June of a, a, a four decade high what, and I thought about Joe Biden's plan to deal with the rising gas prices here which is to have a tax, a gas tax holiday, which is going to reduce the gas price, I think they said by 16 cents a gallon or 20, 20 some odd cents a gallon, when the actual increase is almost $2 a gallon. Uh, 
So this is just Joe Biden not understanding or failing to do what needs to be done to bring about a change in the problem. Well, yes. Again, I mean, uh, that would be a, a, a very minor reduction in taxes, but it is a tax cut. And if that has any effect on, on prices, then it's likely actually to increase demand for, for, for gasoline, which will, which will now offset the, uh, the, uh, the, the tax cut. Um, again, uh, working on the demand side uh, is not the place to work in, in, in this particular inflation. It is on the supply side. And uh, uh, the supply side is not something that, for example, the Federal Reserve can address by, by increasing interest rates. That will only lead to recession. And, and you know, economists are finally, you know, acknowledging that we're probably going uh, to have a recession. We may already be in recession. We had a, we had a downturn in the first quarter of this year and uh, the second quarter ending here in uh, the end of July will tell us whether or not we're already in a recession. But uh, fiscal policy, government spending, is the way to address the supply issues by by spending in a way that increases the supply of things that are that are now being inflated in price, like food and and gasoline and other kinds of things. But removing the sanctions, of course, is is another way of doing that. You know, I was just thinking about something. When I was in law enforcement, there was an interesting case where a person was injured by something and they died eight years later of something related to that injury. And then the question is, you know, is it murder? You know, you, you did something and eight years later they died as a result of it. And my thought is this. History books, and you're an economist 50 years from now writing on this. Do you look at what's going on now and say, 2008? never got fixed, never got changed, that there was never a real recovery, the recovery was on paper, that what we are dealing with now are still um, part of the injury, part of the systemic problem that was there in 2008 that wasn't ever addressed or fixed, it was papered over. Well, yes, 2008 is certainly uh, a, a, a pivotal uh, symptom of a problem that you know goes back to the 1970s and um, uh, certainly was exacerbated in the Reagan administration and the Clinton administration with their with their economic policies. Uh, we call it neoliberalism, uh, and uh, you know those. But but uh, the 2008 uh, crisis is a symptom. We had at the end of the Clinton administration the repeal of uh, Glass-Steagall which allowed the banking industry essentially to begin to speculate, and in Wall Street and they did. And, and so when it collapsed in 2008, no, that has not been fixed. Uh, it's continuing. Uh, we, we have these continuing speculations and derivatives and, and so forth. Uh, that's, that's a problem that has been fixed. Of course, climate change is another exacerbation of this inflation. It has not been uh, addressed at all. We've got a supply chain crisis, which uh, uh, the, the symptoms, the weakness of the supply chain emerged during the pandemic, but it was there. It was there before, and so there's a, a certainly a perfect storm of many symptoms of of an economic system uh, that is, uh, I think, in in serious decline. Uh, and what that means is declining living standards for persons in the U.S. and in the EU, and uh, we will continue to have these protests as a result. You know, I think part of Garland's question also points to the manner in which American analysts view the world and view history, because 
I think part of the answer to Garland's question is, well, it depends on the timeline that you that that you view history. We were talking uh, last week with uh, K.J. No, and he was telling the story about in 72, uh, Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai was asked about what's your take on the French Revolution? And he said in 72, well, it's still too early to tell. <laughs> so it, 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 it depends on your perception of history and the time frames in which you choose to view it. Dr. Tahi. Yes, yes, I, I agree. These are, these are uh, you know, develop, country development and international development is not something that happens overnight. Uh, these things come, uh, they take some time to, to work themselves out. And, uh, you know, to the extent that, let's say, mainstream media in the U.S. is not um, uh, reporting on the, the problems that are going in the EU, uh, in, in Europe, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't stop the problems from happening in Europe. And one of the things that the Europeans have to do with this uh, sanction in Ukraine situation is to decide whether they're going to continue to be uh, vassals of America or whether they're going to go on their own, own way and, and pursue their own interests. That would be a major, major shift uh, in, in geopolitics that will take some time to work itself out but but if it, if it does, then we find that the U.S. is is isolated from the rest of the world, including Europe, but also Russia and China, which which uh, and, and other 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 um, South American, African countries, and so forth. So this is I think this is a time of a of a possible major geopolitical shift, uh, shift that will take some time to work itself out. And and just really quickly to, to that point, we talked about uh, in the first segment, the EU Commission wants to drop unanim unanimity in foreign policy decisions. That could bring about a huge shift in the politics of the European Union. Yes, and I, I wonder, I wonder if this shift of unanimity for EU um, actions is actually a prelude to dropping unanimity in in NATO. Uh, mm -hmm. Because Turkey is is uh, blocking the entry of Finland and Sweden mm -hmm. into NATO. Uh, of course, uh, you know, proving Finland and Sweden into NATO becomes now an existential threat to the uh, to the nuclear armed Soviet Union. Uh, excuse me, Russia, uh, which is not the Soviet Union. And uh, you know, this is more and more prodding. This is uh, and and uh, Turkey is actually standing in the uh, in in the way, blocking. Um, uh, what would be, I think, a foolish move. Uh, and, and if they could eliminate unanimity in, in voting in the EU, maybe the, they're wanting to do that with NATO as well. Uh, Turkey has always been the odd man out in NATO anyway. And it would be aligned with the rules-based order, which is arbitrary and capricious. And they, you know, and, and it's like, well, everybody has to say, and we're not getting what we want. We got to change the rules so we can get what we want, ultimately. Yes, yeah, if this is the U.S. Um, wanting to change the rules, and, and at least the EU Commission uh, is going along with it. Whether the citizens of Europe will go along with it, I, 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 don't, I, I think we're, we're seeing the beginning of that not happening. Well, there are 80,000 people in Brussels saying, uh, we don't think so. So <laughs> stay, stay tuned. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post has a piece entitled, Should My Child Get a Coronavirus Vaccine? Is it safe? And what should you know? With millions of U.S. children now eligible to receive a coronavirus vaccine, public health authorities and experts are urging parents and guardians to immunize their children as the virus continues to mutate and infect Americans. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's a board-certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. She's a public health expert with a telemedicine practice at AskDrYola.com. She is Dr. Yolandra Hancock. As always, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So the CDC approves COVID-19 vaccines for kids under five years of age. On Saturday, the CDC approved the vaccination for children who are at least six months old. This means roughly 20 million children in the U.S. under five years are newly eligible for vaccination. Dr. Hancock, this opens up a new world of opportunities as well as fears and concerns. Right. No, absolutely. Certainly from the opportunity standpoint, we've been waiting a while for the littlest of those exposed to COVID to be able to get vaccinated. And so for a good number of parents, this is very reassuring that this vaccine is now available. For other parents, there are significant concerns in terms of, um, particularly in social media, what they may have heard or read about in terms of putting their children at risk in getting this vaccine. Based on the clinical data that we have from the trials, we know that with the Moderna vaccine, over 6,000 children participated in their clinical trial for Pfizer, over 4,500, which is a good number of individuals. The other good thing about the vaccines is that we have had these vaccines out in the 5 to 11-year-old population, in the 12 to 17-year-old population, in the adult population, and there have been no significant red flags. I do not anticipate there would be any difference and how a six-month-old would interact with this vaccine, comparatively speaking, to a six-year-old. And based on what they reported out in terms of side effects and efficacy, it was very reassuring in terms of the, the, the few side effects that were experienced in the patient population, a lot to do with just some irritability and a little bit of pain and fever at the injection site, particularly for the older little ones. But none of the side effects that we were concerned about in the adolescent and adult population, things like myocarditis, which isn't surprising given the fact that myocarditis is a rare occurrence in children in this age group anyway. You can count me under the fears and concern category because, and I mean, as you know, as we, we admit, a certain number of people are going to say, yes, this is wonderful. And then there's going to be garlands that are pretty much horrified thinking to, to thinking it's a very young age. We don't know long run, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, what are we going to find out? And as far as me thinking this is my child, weighing it against what are the odds of them going to the hospital, getting sick, long COVID, it scares me to death, to be quite frank, to, to if I have a, a one-year-old or a six-month-old six or something that I'm giving them this. What are your thoughts? Right. So you have to come, it isn't get the shot and there may be something that happens five years from now versus nothing. It's get them the shot and they're protected versus giving them risk of acquiring COVID, where we do know for a fact that there can be long-term implications in terms of COVID, not just in terms of long COVID symptoms, but also in terms of multi-system inflammatory syndrome, where the majority of children who experienced that were under the age of 10. 
and a good percentage of them under the age of five. When you look at our most recent wave of this pandemic, the majority of children who were hospitalized were under the age of five. Children under the age of five had the highest rate of hospitalizations compared to any other pediatric group. And among those children hospitalized, one in four of them ended up in the ICU. We know that anywhere between 15 to 50% of children in total are likely going to experience some form of long COVID symptom. And so when I thought through it as the mother of a nine-year-old, I had to ask myself, do I want my daughter to be at risk for multi-system inflammatory syndrome and or long COVID? Or am I going to put her at whatever minimal risk there may be in terms of this vaccine? What we also know, to your point, is that every other vaccine that we have had since I know the 20 years that I've been a pediatrician, there have been no long-term, we didn't know it acutely, but we found out later effects in terms of vaccines. We had some initial concerns when it came to the HPV vaccine, that's the human papillomavirus vaccine, and its association with Guillain-Barre. They took it off the market, we envisioned it, and then we've no longer had those same issues. But it was an acute response. We saw it immediately. In the history of vaccinations, there has not yet been a vaccine that has been created that sort of stays under the radar and then shows symptoms, complications um, five to 10 years later. So that's not my concern. As, as a pediatrician, having practiced for a long time now, I have not yet seen a vaccine that demonstrates an impact later on in life. And so that for me, both as a parent, as a pediatrician, that isn't one of my concerns. But for parents are trying, who are trying to weigh the risk, like the, the media would have us to believe that children are not disproportionately impacted by COVID, but that's only in comparison to adults. When you compare children with COVID to children with influenza, we definitely see differences in how children were impacted in a, at a greater level with COVID than they have been with influenza. And that was one of the other reasons why I felt more compelled to counsel families in terms of considering getting this vaccine for their children, even at six months of age. There are differences between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine series. Children ages six months through four years get three, three microgram doses of Pfizer, whereas for Moderna, Children ages six months through five years get two 25 microgram doses, which are one quarter of the dose given to adults four weeks apart. So quickly, just talk, whereas the Pfizer is a third of the dose. Do you know why the difference in, uh, in the dosage protocols? Right. So Pfizer and Moderna took different approaches in total in terms of how they developed out their vaccine. Pfizer took a minimalist approach. What is the smallest amount of vaccine dose that will elicit the strongest immune response? Moderna, on the other hand, wanted to give the biggest bang for the buck, hoping that there would be a longer and stronger immune response. And so their dosing of this mRNA-based vaccine has a higher level of concentration in total compared to Pfizer. One of the reasons why there was a more significant delay in the FDA providing emergency use authorization for Moderna across the pediatric age spectrum which they were finally granted with this last review. With Pfizer, the other issue is that in the two to four-year-old age group, the smallest dose possible, they're using a three microgram dose. At the three microgram dose, it did not elicit an immune response at all in the two to four-year-old age group, which is why we had to add on this third dose. 
to be honest with you, for each of these vaccines, it is going to be a three-dose series. For Moderna right now, it's two doses separated by four weeks. With Pfizer, it is now three doses. And with Pfizer, there will likely be the need for a fourth booster. That's one of the things that parents also need to take into consideration if there's the option of choice. Pfizer right now is a standard three-dose series with the likelihood of, an, of a fourth dose needed as their booster. With Moderna, it's going to be a two-dose series with a third dose added as a booster for right now. And as we go into the future, what will likely happen is that for everyone, it will be a three-part series vaccine with an additional booster in order to elevate our immune response six months out. And is, has there been any discussion on, you know, if you do a booster, okay, three, your third booster or fourth, fourth booster, whatever, right? Let's say this fall you take your fourth booster and that lasts three months or whatever. Has there been a discussion as to do we continue to go ad infinitum till, you know, just a booster every three months for life? Or is there a minimum or maximum number of boosters? Or you're, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm asking, I guess. I know exactly what you're getting at. The question you asked, Mr. Nixon, is the same question I asked. Are we going to boost the boost the boost until we boost it out? Like, what is, what's the end game in terms of boosters? What has been in conversation is the development of what's called a bivalent vaccine. Moderna is actually working on one right now with likely review by the FDA sometime before the fall. What it will include is the original components of vaccine mixed in with components specific, specifically reflective of the Omicron variant. And what Moderna has been able to show is that with this bivalent or this dual component vaccine is that it provides a stronger immune response. It responds to both or all of the variants that we have dealt with, original, alpha, beta, delta, you name it in the Greek alphabet. This one addresses it, and it also addresses the Omicron variant. Hopefully, with this bivalent vaccine that Moderna will come out with, and I'm sure Pfizer is right behind them, this will allow us to have a pattern of vaccines similarly to what we do with influenza, where instead of it being this every three-month situation, it becomes a fall um, annual vaccine. We won't get to that place until, one, we slow down transmission, and two, we slow down mutation in order for us to be able to keep a steady state where all we're dealing with is Omicron and its subvariants, as opposed to there now being a Pi and some more down the line a Zeta variant. If we don't slow down mutation, we will continue to be in this space of needing some form of booster in order to decrease the spread of COVID. There is another interesting piece in the Washington Post. It is entitled Debunking Myths About Cancer. Many popular beliefs are wrong and cause needless worry, sometimes prompting people to disregard prevention behaviors that can also result in unwise treatment decisions. A research suggests that despite steady decreases in cancer mortality rates in recent years, most Americans still see cancer as a death sentence, a perception that is not only false but also dangerous if it leads people to forego prevention, early detection, detection and treatment, experts say. And this got my attention because I am a cancer survivor. So your thoughts, Dr. Hancock? Now, in reading this article, one, what it speaks to is what we dealt with with the COVID-19 pandemic, disinformation and misinformation 
The beauty of the internet, especially Google, is that it allows patients to have agency and advocacy when they come to a healthcare provider's office. The, the challenge, I'll call it, of the internet, particularly Google, is that there's so much misinformation and disinformation that it can be a very confusing space. I have spoken with patients directly in terms of cancer diagnoses, where based on what they read on various social media platforms, they have decided to forego cancer treatments. They believe that they were misdiagnosed because doctors are telling them they have cancer simply because they make money off of kickbacks from providing chemotherapy when there was actually no cancer diagnosis, even though the lab results are blatantly in front of us from pathology. And then some of the natural ways of healing the body, they have opted for those instead of, as opposed to in conjunction with Western ways of managing cancer. This speaks to health literacy. That's the second issue that I thought about when I read through this article. There has to be better relationship with healthcare providers so that when we talk to our patients about cancer diagnoses, they don't leave feeling void without information. Perhaps it's a follow-up phone call. Maybe there is some form of space that they can be sent to where the doctor or a, another patient who has dealt with cancer can connect with them and help navigate them through it. Mm -hmm. This is an excellent opportunity for us to address health literacy. And it also speaks back to one of the other topics we talked about, and that's the distrust of the medical community. When patients will believe that we are misdiagnosing cancer to get some sort of big pharma kickback, or that there are treatments that we are recommending that actually cause you to have even worsening cancer, there are patients that I know of who believe mammograms cause cancer. Okay. And will refuse to get a mammogram because they read online that mammograms cause cancer. And okay. we know absolutely that that is not the case. And so it's really just connecting and establishing strong, trusting relationships to navigate people through what could be a very scary diagnosis. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. CVV News reports Ukraine attack on Russian oil platforms in the Black Sea leaves seven missing. At least three people were injured and seven disappeared yesterday as a result of an, ale of an attack allegedly perpetrated by the Ukrainian army against Russian oil platforms in the Black Sea. How significant of an issue is this? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea. He's a film director and podcaster, Regis Tremblay. As always, Regis, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me. So talk about uh, how significant of an issue is this? What impact does it have on oil and gas production. And I was also wondering about any leakage of oil into the Black Sea. Okay, well, we'll start with the last one. Uh, there has been no reports about any leakage of oil into the Black Sea, which would obviously be a really important problem for mm -hmm. everybody in the region. Mm -hmm. Now, the news here and 
I'm referring to the Russian Ministry of Defense report. I'm referring to several uh, blogs and telegram reports. Um, the, the, what happened is very confusing. There are a couple of different scenarios. One, that it was a deliberate attack by Ukraine. The second is that it was a mistake. Uh, apparently, a fighter jet thought that they were on a mission to destroy some Russian vessels, and they mistakenly fired on the oil rig. And Ukraine has presented that as one of their small victories. So as of yet, there is no definitive report on what exactly ha happened in terms of where did the missiles come from and who shot them. So I wish I could tell you more, but from where I'm sitting, there isn't any more about this. It seems to me also that that would kind of cement the – not that I think there was any difference, but the, 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 the concept with the Russians that they are going to have to really take Odessa, that they're going to have to control the shores of the Black Sea in order to um, maintain the integrity of their assets, be they military or um, – or civilian, you know, anywhere that would be accessible to the Black Sea, because if the uh, the Ukrainians get any kind of missiles and they still got Odessa, the odds are they'll think about firing them. I agree with you 100 uh, percent. Odessa, I think, will definitely be taken by Russia. Uh, that may not happen for another month or two once the Donbass issue uh, is concluded. And many people think that that is probably going to happen by the end of the month. Some people have even predicted it was going to happen within the next week or so. I don't know about that. But you're exactly right about Odessa being strategically important for Russia, not only in terms of protecting the Black Sea from any attacks by Ukraine, but also as an important, basically Russian-speaking city. Uh, and strategic location, shipping area, manufacturing right on the Black Sea. So I tend to agree with you. I think Russia, for a number of reasons, uh, will have to take Odessa. I don't think we're going to see that happen very soon, at least until the Donbass situation is completely resolved. I want to ask one more question about the oil platform in, in your point that it could have been a, a wayward pilot making a mistake. When you said that, it made me think about uh, Scott Ritter was on a while back when that uh, missile hit the train station, and he was saying that based upon the reverse azimuth of the flight of the missile and a number of other identifiable elements, that that missile was actually shot by the Ukrainians, and that because it was uh, it had been out of maintenance, that basically it, it just went awry and mistakenly hit the train station. So you're saying that it could be a confused, mistaken, or uh, uh, silly pilot that shot the wrong thing. Do you know who the pilot, what, what country was the pilot flying for? Your point that about Scott Ritter saying once they determined where it came from based on the trajectory and the azimuth, uh, that has not been determined yet by Russia. 
And once it has, then I think everybody will know with a certain amount, a great deal of certainty, exactly what it was. For now, it's in my opinion, it's just speculation. Okay, understood. And assuming that Scott is correct, and assuming that this is a wayward, misguided pilot, the Ukrainian side of this fight does not seem to be as carefully orchestrated and, and, and controlled as we are being led to believe. Well, I agree with you. I, I think there's nothing uh, orchestrated. Uh, there's nothing coordinated with what is happening on the ground in terms of Ukrainian forces, including the Azov Battalion. They're, they're, they really do not have direct communication with command. It was reported and confirmed a day or so ago that the Russians struck a location where uh, some 50 or so Ukrainian generals and commanders were gathered for a high-level meeting and wiped them all out. Um, communications between command and the units has been terrible. Uh, desertions are taking place. Surrenders are taking place. And what they're all saying is they get no support from command. They were sent out there without proper equipment. In other words, to fight tanks with machine guns. And they don't have enough reinforcements and not enough food. So when you, when you talk about a coordinated effort by Ukraine, as far as the military is concerned, it's non-existent. In my opinion, there have been a couple of attempts at counteroffensive that, that have been defeated immediately. And most of what Ukrainian has left as an army is in a defensive survival at all costs position. You know, Regis, there's a, a number of articles, the EU, it's pushing for a seventh round of sanctions, new sanctions, and more military aid to Ukraine. Here's the thing about it. I'm reading today that in Brussels, there's 70,000 people in the street angry over the cost of everything going up. The Brits have strikes, people in the streets. Europe has, only, I, I, you know, we've been talking about that, Wilmer and I, as you know, for a while, that, that this place is going to erupt. These people are furious. They, okay. And meanwhile, their leaders are like, yeah, we have the cure for that. Another round of sanctions. And might I add... It doesn't seem like the Russians are in the street, <laughs> but uh, I guess another round of sanctions must be the plan. Your thoughts on that? Well, President Putin gave a very important address just, I think it was yesterday, at the uh, plenary session of the St. Petersburg 25th Economic Council. Uh, it was a very impressive speech. He laid out a number of points, but I, I'm just going to talk about two that the sanctions have had a minimal effect on Russia, in fact, have had a really beneficiary effect on Russia in that it has forced Russia to go into input substitution, to go into now developing uh, technology that they were relying on from the West. And the Russians are completely capable of this. They got very brilliant engineers and technicians. Um, the second thing that he said was these sanctions are hurting the collective West, led by the United States, more than they're hating, than they're hurting Russia. I can tell you, we're not suffering badly here at all from these sanctions. Prices went up a little bit. Everything else has been normal. But as you mentioned, 
thousands of people in Brussels out protesting. All of the news that I'm reading from Germany, which was the wealthiest and strongest country in the EU, are suffering now terribly because of the lack of gas and oil from Russia. Industries are shutting down, laying off people. They're worried about heating their homes this winter. They're worried about food scarcity. They're worried about the rising cost of fuel. And Germany is in a better position, should have been in a better position to withstand this than the rest of Europe. And the rest of Europe is worse off. And now Germany, unbelievable, is talking about going back to coal-fired power plants. And so to me, when I read this news and I see these protests about what's happening in Europe, all the way to the UK, Scotland and Ireland, these people are now preparing for the worst. We're not just talking high inflation, 20% and higher. We're not talking recession. We are talking something like a major depression. They're, they're going to coal power plants. They're better off than Poland. They're foraging, <laughs> they're foraging, <laughs> they're foraging for sticks. For wood. <laughs> so much for a clean environment. Germany had worked so hard at that for so long. When I was there five years ago, I went with my son and we took a trip. I don't know, it was a couple hundred kilometers and on both sides of the road, in whether in, in communities, villages, towns, cities, or rural areas, farms, barns, solar panels everywhere, mm -hmm. parking lots, solar panels. And I said, oh, my God, Germany is like decades ahead of where America is supposed to be. They're really serious about this, you know, clean environment and alternative energy. Uh, so it's really startling that Germany now is saying we're going back to coal because we're not going to buy gas and oil from Putin. A commission president calls to end unanimity in EU foreign policy decisions. Ursula von der Leyen calls for qualified majority voting, saying geopolitical events require faster response. We have three minutes. What does this signal to you? Because this could be interpreted a couple of different ways, Regis. This signals to me that those in power in the EU, uh, like van der Leyen, uh, are terrified. They see what's happening. Now they're looking take, to take away whatever sovereignty is left to the individual EU countries. And I can tell you this, this isn't going to work. These other countries now are already talking about their sovereignty. They're talking about nationalism again, preserving their cultures and their languages. And 20, 30 years ago, it was all, ah, let's join this big happy family. You know, no visas, no passports, just go wherever you want, make lots of money. I think this is an indication, along with many others, that the EU is, fra is fracturing. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't see how you can... Um you know, basically, because it becomes the lowest common denominator. So because you have countries that are bottom line, they'll be dragged around by the Baltic states who are just anti-Russian fruitcakes. But I think also, uh, Regis, to that is the, a, a lot of countries are now saying we're being taken down a rabbit hole following the blindly following the United States. And this isn't working for us. We have a minute and a half. Yeah. And President Putin brought that out in his speech at the uh, St. Petersburg Economic Forum. He talked about there are many more countries looking towards a different worldview. In other words, a multipolar world 
based on the strict observance of international law and the UN Charter and the sovereignty of all nations. He made an enormous point of this in his speech, it was like over an hour long. Um, I watched it all. And uh, I think uh, the BRICS nations is going to become stronger and expanded. The Asian uh, alliances is becoming stronger and stronger. And the United States and its unipolar vision, its drive for total world domination, according to Putin, is over. Regis Tremblay. As always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Israel confirms regional military project showing its growing role. The Israeli defense minister, Benny Gantz, said Israel was working with other countries in the Middle East to combat Iranian military threats. What does this mean? What military threats are they talking about? For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and independent journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So the Israeli government confirmed yesterday that it is part of a regional military partnership to combat threats from Iran. The members of the new initiative called the Middle East Air Defense Alliance are working together with the U.S. against Iranian missiles, rockets, and unmanned drones. So, Laith, are these offensive or defensive, quote-unquote, Iranian threats, and are they real actual threats, or are they afraid of the deterrent effect that Iran has in the region right now? Hopefully that makes sense. Well, uh, clearly the uh, axis of resistance that includes all the uh, resistance movements in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, uh, have, uh, uh, along with Iran, of course, have shown that their uh, military capabilities are very uh, strong in the face of any of uh, available American defenses. And that means a lot when we talk about how uh, the United States, uh, through its vessels, the, the Saudis and the Emiratis, were not able to defeat the Yemeni resistance. And in fact, the Yemeni resistance uh, holds the Saudi uh, oil infrastructure now as a target uh, in any continued war in front of us. The truth of the matter is that uh, this military alliance that the Zionists just announced has been in existence since the birth of uh, these deformities, uh, the Zionist colony and these uh, kingdoms uh, in the Gulf that are fabricated uh, and artificially created by the British occupation and now uh, maintained through American force. Those two, those entities 
all existed in symbiosis militarily, financially, uh, completely. And anything we hear about a extended, renewed, uh, expanded uh, alliance between these uh, states is just hyperbole because there's nothing more they can be, um, uh, you know, working together on against liberation in the uh, in the region. That's been a fact for a hundred years. Let me ask you this. Even if, let's say, these Muslim nations are training militarily with Israel, in the event of a war, I, I can't see how a Muslim nation, even though they're, it's, it, it, it would be, you know, Shiite versus uh, 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 Sunni, I cannot see how a Muslim nation could join together with Israel to fight another Muslim nation and not have their, you know, basically base the c- citizens at home kind of fall apart and wreck the place. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that? Yeah, well, even even if we just uh, forget the population who clearly in all these countries, the population is not willing uh, to die for these leaders. Uh, and that is why, you know, we need to point out the reality, which is the Saudis, when they needed or the the Kuwaitis, uh, the Qataris, the Emiratis, when they needed to fight even Iraq, they needed uh, a full NATO coalition to come and defend them. So to claim that these uh, uh, statelets, these vessels that there that have useless armies, um, are going to somehow be able to defend themselves uh, with the help of the Zionist against Iran, the Zionists, the same Zionists that couldn't defend themselves against the resistance in Gaza and begged for an end of a war last year uh, within eight, uh, 11 days of, of bombardment by the resistance from the uh, concentration camp or besieged strip of Gaza. So imagine this, what I'm trying to say here is that let them bring all their might. We already saw the components of this supposed uh, military alliance, what they can do by themselves against even fragments of the uh, axis of resistance. Uh, And the truth is neither the Zionist colony nor these uh, kingdoms in the Gulf can defend themselves against anybody without the direct involvement of the complete military force of the empire. One of the reasons why I asked in my open about offensive versus defensive so-called threats and are they real action or are they trying to eliminate a deterrent, it, when I read this article, it, it made me think about the assassination of General Soleimani because according to Prime Minister, uh, Iraqi Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi, he was planning to meet Soleimani the morning that he was killed, and they were going to discuss a diplomatic rapprochement that Iraq had been brokering between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So the Trump administration lures him into this trap and assassinates him while he's on a peace mission. So what that says to me is that the United States and the and the Zionist colony of Israel and now their allies, peace is not really what they're looking for. Am I wrong to to draw the Soleimani assassination into this conversation? Oh, no, no, you're not wrong. You know, the truth of the matter, 
as I discussed previously on previously on this show, the strategic goals of let's say the Zionist colony is permanency, and the strategic goal of the United States, for instance, is the uh, continuation and permanency of their uh, unipolar hegemony, and the options that are left in front of uh, such uh, projects like the Zionist colony are either uh, genocide, direct, outright genocide, let's say, of the Palestinian people or any resisting people in the region, and or to give in to equality, which means at the end of the Zionist colony. Therefore, what we will see in front of us and anybody who is working within the axis of resistance and the uh, Iranian government that are planning their future know that uh, nothing, the Zionists will not uh, budge and the path in front of them if they want to survive is just genocide. And therefore, everybody has to be ready for war. Um, and the more there is delay actually of this war, the, the more advantages that the axis of resistance has, and that's what the Zionists know. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro um, said, the axis of resistance exists throughout the world. It exists in Africa and Asia, in the Middle East, in Latin America, and in the Caribbean. We're seeing um, an anti-imperialist bloc um, that is also a, a new economic order starting to um, arise. And uh, President Maduro has been touring throughout the Middle East. And uh, your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, he went further and said that uh, the liberation of Palestine and Jerusalem is not only a holy issue for uh, Muslims and Arabs, but it's a holy issue for anybody who's, who's uh, fighting against um, uh, colonialism and imperialism, and any uh, freedom-loving people on this earth. So that's, these are now uh, clear, you know, roll out of uh, a new world, world order. Uh, we, of course, see Russia and China starting themselves. Uh, but today we also will see a re-emergence of uh, the non-aligned uh, movement. And now with powerful uh, players like Iran and Venezuela um, and Syria and Algeria and South Africa that this is a new world, um, you know, and we see how the, the United States is rounding up its vessels in the region, as we just spoke before. And also, by the way, there, there was uh, military exercises by the United States with the Moroccan vessel uh, colony there, the state there, uh, on the borders of Algeria just in the past two days. This is... Uh, with the presence of the Zionist uh, military forces. This is unprecedented, but you can see how things are playing out. And it makes uh, full sense for Venezuela after those, uh, you know, amazing um, gestures by Iran of sending um, oil supplies and parts for the extraction uh, you know, of oil and gas uh, that the refineries in Venezuela were missing. Um, their, their help, by, uh, also, you know, Mr. Maduro, in one of his uh, interviews after his uh, visit to Iran, spoke about how Soleimani helped uh, Venezuela in 2019 
when they were having problems with their electricity grid delivery, uh, when it was being under attack, uh, both uh, through uh, cyber attacks and physical terrorist attacks, the, the grid of electricity in Venezuela, and how Mr. Uh, General Soleimani actually helped save Venezuela's uh, electricity grid and bring it back online. Asked about his latest assertion regarding Israel's conspiracies against Venezuela through Mossad, Maduro said imperialism and Zionism are conspiring against the progressive revolutionary processes taking place in Latin America and the Caribbean, especially the Bolivarian Revolution. Maduro really seems to be moving to the forefront as as like a, a interhemispheric leader now. Uh, I mean, he's he's really the optics, uh, Central and South America. He's 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 in the Middle East. He's talking to African leaders. This guy is just all of this while Joe Biden is having his failed summit of some of the Americas. Maduro really seems to be gaining traction. And thank God uh, for him and for the reassertion of uh, South to South. Uh, diplomatic relations and you know we can see clearly all these visits and actions and trade being built between uh, all these uh, southern hemisphere countries and both uh, Asia Africa and Latin America and the Caribbean and uh, it's amazing you know uh, the the world uh, is changing very fast Uh, for many people that are outside the bubble in of the empire we can see the day-to-day change uh, of reality and uh, betterment of uh, the situation. Uh, and uh, inside the bubble of the empire, I think people are going to be surprised when things collapse uh, and they are left behind. Uh, I did want to ask you, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, could you update us on what happened with the gas fields where um, Israel, we had speak, spoken to you recently, and you said Israel was um, going to, threatening to take some gas from Lebanon and Hezbollah was threatening to respond? Yes, yes. So uh, the American negotiator arrived uh, earlier uh, on, on on Sunday, and uh, they have, they're still in Beirut negotiating with the government. Um, so we should be expecting a clear, uh, you know, line of where we're going to be going is, uh, are the Zionists going to back out? Are the U.S. going to actually act as a uh, decent negotiator and uh, avert war and conflict? Or are we going to see the Zionists insisting on looting uh, the gas field of Ghana um, that is, uh, you know, straddles the international maritime borders of uh, Palestine and Lebanon? Uh, and if they do that, for sure, we will see the uh, resistance uh, asserting Lebanon's uh, rights. And Senator Biden, when he was running for president, promised us that he was going to lead with diplomacy. And I don't think that he even has a clue as to what he was talking about. Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports, as Latin America embraces a new left, the U.S. could take a back seat. They write, for more than two centuries, Colombia has was considered a conservative stalwart in Latin America. Even as leftist governments came and went across the region, a center-right political establishment remained in control, a continuity that cemented the country's role as a key ally. On Sunday night, everything changed. Well, what's interesting to me about this opening paragraph is that the Post makes this sound as though a center-right political establishment remaining in control was benign of U.S. intervention and control. They make it seem as though, well, this was just the way it was in Colombia, and now, magically, things have changed. Well, and for- center-right. Was Pinochet center-right? <laughs> How about far-to-the-fascists <laughs> center-right? Great point, Garland. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the U.S. correspondent to the Southern African Times, and he's the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association, and he's also a writer for the uh, uh, Herald newspaper in Zimbabwe. Obi Egbuna, as always, Obi, welcome back. Good to be back. How y'all doing? We are well. We are well. So uh, Gustavo Petro, a senator and former uh, guerrilla fighter, was elected the country's first leftist president, galvanizing millions of poor, young, struggling Colombians desperate for someone different. (laughs) Obi, someone who is not controlled by neoliberal U.S. interests, I would guess. Uh, His victory, unthinkable just a generation ago, the, the Post says, was the most stunning example yet of how the pandemic has transformed the politics of Latin America. This was all due to the pandemic? Obi Igbuna. See, when, when the Washington Post took control of Foreign Policy magazine, the most right-wing magazine um, in the world, controlled by uh, the man who was the advisor to Juan Guiado, in Venezuela. Now you can't distinguish the post from the uh, foreign policy magazine. And this is why we have to deal with this whole question of a spectrum makeover, because their left is not our left, their right is not our right. So this is another example of that. But you brothers are forcing me to go back 21 years and remind me that I'm not getting younger. (laughs) We got to take this back to remember Plan Colombia. When most people were heading to Durban to send an emphatic statement to President Bush about his reckless statements about reparations, his reckless statement about our displacement and our captivity, we, I remember being in El Salvador, and there was a meeting called the Encounter with Plan Colombia, where organizers from all over the Americas were coming together to deal with U.S. imperialism's war on drugs, as they like to put it. And the meeting was supposed to take place at the University of San Salvador. And uh, the U.S. Embassy called the chancellor of the university, and he canceled the uh, event. He said they could not host it. So within 12 hours, our comrades in El Salvador and the FMLN had to find three separate locations for the event to be held. So we knew at that particular point that Colombia was becoming a problem. 
Um, as someone who walked a brother named Juan Batista Amud through the streets of D.C., he's the founder of the first all-African student group in Colombia called Afro-Red, and we introduced them to different people. And if I'm not mistaken, Brother Wilma, didn't I introduce you to the former governor of Choco, Luis Gilberto Murillo? Yes. You did an interview with him a long, long time ago? Yes, that's correct. Oh, so, yeah. So we've, been, so we've been paying attention to Colombia for a long time because um, there are millions of Africans in Colombia, and we knew that beyond the drugs, this was the continuation of imperialism, imperialist hegemony. And now, um, Brother Malcolm said the ballot or the bullet. But it seems like they're losing control of the ballot. Now, all we have to do is increase the bullets and we will change the world. So we're very happy about this. This is on the 60th anniversary of Kennedy's blockade on Cuba. And remember, Kennedy warned what makes Cuba dangerous is not the ability to maintain their revolutionary past, but the inspiration they will give to others to follow their example. And this is not a new left. This is the same left. These are just younger people following the traditional trail. Trails never change. Ideas never change. Principles never change. Human beings just gain an evolved understanding of principles and show the courage and integrity to put principles into action. Let me, let me ask you this, <clears throat> you know, about the way things are changing. President Maduro was in Iran and said the actions of resistance, resistance exist throughout the world. It exists in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, in Latin America, uh-huh. and in the Caribbean. Yeah. President Putin was in uh, St. Petersburg's, Petersburg the other day talking about the U.S. empire, and he said they consider everything a backwater or their backyard. They still treat them like colonies and the people living there. They're like second class people because they consider themselves exceptional. If they are exceptional, that means everyone else is, is second rate. It seems like there's something going on in this world where this anti-imperialist block is growing. Your thoughts? Well, as um, I'm a little jealous because as this is the 100th birthday of that great Pan-African giant, Akme Sekutere, and our children are doing a play about him on Saturday called Ready for the Revolution. He said imperialism will find its grave in Africa, but I'll be damned. They got the shovels out in the Americas, don't they? <laughs> they, they, put, they put the regime change agent in Bolivia in jail the other day, did they not? Yes, they did. Now you see this, now you see this happening in Colombia. Oh, and, oh uh, um, uh, 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 brother, uh, brother, brother, brother Obi, I don't know if you saw a crowd put old uh, Juan Guaido got put back to factory settings, shall we say. <laughs> he was escorted. He was in a restaurant, escorted to the door in a restaurant. Maybe they should send him back to George Washington University where he got his start. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing and the thing that people keep forgetting about um, Maduro is he was a bus driver. Mm-hmm. Imagine telling a bus driver to drive some metro in D.C. or Martyr in Atlanta that they could be president of the nation, that the, that the political climate is that flexible and people truly can be trained and politicized from the bottom up to be the master of their own destiny. But this isn't a democracy. So, so they're taking a hit because you remember this goes back to when Mike Pence had the audacity to go before the Organization of American States and demand that um, Venezuela be excluded. Mm-hmm. We saw, we see how um, their cha- their influence as Caricom is breaking because one of the things that we've been pushing for, how now based on ge- whoever 
um, and CARICOM decided not to make give Cuba permanent status. For Cuba not to have permanent status in CARICOM, that's like saying Egypt isn't in Africa. So evidently, the people who taught Columbus geography are controlling that conversation. What's going on here? So yes, what is happening is, so they failed in Nicaragua with the elections. What is happening is what we talk about every time that we come on here. The wealth of the world, the division between the wealthy and the impoverished is wider than it's ever been in the history of humanity. This can't continue. 2,755, 75 billionaires worth $13 trillion and 609 million people living on a dollar 90 cents a day. And when you look at the LDC countries, least developed country, um, countries that have that status, they're African nations, Caribbean nations, the Latin American nations. If you look at the nations that are considered the most extremely poor, they're African nations, Caribbean nations, and Latin American nations. Something has to give. And the hostility of the United States on a diplomatic front is creating a climate where there is more resentment towards them than ever before. But not resentment steep rooted in emotion, but resentment rooted in a resistance organized resistance that represents a desire for meaningful change on the planet. And it's overdue. So we love what we're seeing, but we do understand this is a pendulum. It goes back and forth. And as Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah taught us many years ago, defending liberated territory is more challenging than fighting, contesting for liberation. So Colombia must stay this course. We saw how Evo Morales was snatched from us. The Bolivians must stay the course. Venezuela looks like they're willing to stay the course. Lord knows Cuba's going to stay the course. Zimbabwe must stay the course. Eritrea must stay the course. North Korea must stay the course. All these nations who are the best examples of self-determination, meaning they will decide their direction, they will decide their destiny, not the imperialists, not the colonialists, not the neoliberalists, not the neocolonialists. And the saga continues. Uh, do we have the spirit to outlast them? As you mentioned, the LDC countries, and you said a, a good number of them are African or Caribbean. You also now have in Europe, in what Hungary and Poland, you've got people foraging, going through the forest, looking for sticks to heat their homes uh, because they can't get oil and natural gas. They're, so they're going back to the days of the hunter-gatherer. So it's not only is it changing, I mean, but it's, so it's changing in Europe too. But I wanted to get your, uh, I, I wanted to ask you another point about Colombia. Colombia, because Colombia was a staging ground for the United States to wreak havoc in the region. Uh, there are reports, and many believe, that the assassins that went in and took out Moise in, in, in Haiti came from Colombia. So if you could talk about, we've got about three minutes left, if you could talk about the impact that Colombia has been playing as a staging ground for U.S. hegemony. Brother Well, Mama, make you every time I come on here, you guys make me feel like a comedian because you're always laughing. <laughs> Let's do it better than that, Brother Wilma, because you know they accuse people of you and I of ignoring the domestic aspect of this. So let's give people what they want. Let's deal with the career of Eric Holder. What did Eric Holder do in Colombia? Didn't Eric Holder use the influence of his law firm to prevent the banana company? Uh, Chiquita, from being tried as criminals because the, the Homeland Security mandate said 
They could not give security contracts to company, companies that had debt squads. And the debt squads in the Colombia were the security for Chiquita Banana Company. So Chiquita Banana Company, some of the people, the CEOs and others were facing imprisonment. Eric Holder used his influence to get the case thrown out of civil court, criminal court. It goes to civil court and Chiquita pays the fine with money that they carry around in their pockets. You ain't forget that, did you? No, yeah, sir. Yeah, go look that up. <laughs> so this is so this is so this is what I'm saying. This has been going on for a very long time. So their backyard has imploded. And one thing that we know, they can't have, if it was up to them, we'd still be on plantations. If it was up to them, northern Zambia would still be northern Rhodesia. Zimbabwe will still be southern Rhodesia. Tanzania would be British Tanganyika. Malawi would be British Nyasaland. Ghana would be the Gold Coast. So they have separation anxiety. They refuse to let go. And they were so, and as Comandante Fidel Castro said, the one thing about um, the octopus, their tentacles eventually get tangled. And they have been using Colombia as a base the same way they, um, they use Djibouti in East Africa to meddle in the affairs of all of East Africa. The same way they're using Ghana to meddle in the affairs of all of West Africa. The same way they attempted to use Botswana in Southern Africa to meddle in the affairs of nations in Southern Africa that they could not control. Well, Botswana is not strong enough. As Gerald Horn said, the Botswana military couldn't beat the Bloods and Crips. So what we're seeing, so what we're seeing is you, you see this happening all the time. They like to have their centralized areas where their intelligence agencies can do their dirt. And this is also a defeat for the United States Agency for International Development, because our comrades in the Bolivarian Alliance for Our Americas said seven years ago they should be shown the door. Right around that same time, Putin expelled them from Russia. But even before that, Isaias Afwerki, the president of Eritrea in 2005, showed them the door in Eritrea. So their humanitarian mm -hmm. aid vehicles are taking defeats. Okay. Their diplomatic outlets are taking defeats, and their political parties are taking their defeats. So they're going to go. They're going to take this loss and try to rebound from it. And history obligates us to build from the momentum. Obi Egbona, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. And the hell with foreign policy and the Washington Post. Y'all have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I am Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Consortium News has an interesting piece entitled, If Albanese Ask for Assange's Freedom, Biden Has Every Reason to Agree. It's written by Bob Carr, the longest-serving premier of NSW and a former foreign minister of Australia. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange and a friend of the show, Steve Poikin. And Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, gentlemen. Great to be here. The story in Consortium News 
a great site, a site, I might add, starts. Two years ago at my local Australian Labor Party branch, I moved a motion urging the ALP to support dropping extradition proceedings against Julian Assange. The motion was carried near unanimously. It was the Trump administration, probably at the insistence of Mike Pompeo, that pursued Assange's extradition. The Morrison government declined even the faintest whinny of protest. It was as if we were not a sovereign government, but some category of the U.S. territory like Puerto Rico and an Australian passport holder didn't rate protection from the vengeful, ang- vengeful anger of one corner of the American security apparatus of France or Germany and a New Zealand would not have been as craven. Well, now we know they would. Your thoughts, <laughs> your thoughts, uh, Steve Porkinen. Well, he does. He does make some good points. I don't know if the the argument at the end necessarily holds up because I do believe they would. Yes. But um, <clears throat> the Australia has effectively been a a vassal state or a client state or the unrecognized fifty first another fifty first state of the U.S. for decades now, and the Morrison government they they didn't even they didn't even blink. No one in the Morrison government blinked. But uh, for Anthony Albanese to kind of you know, at least suggest publicly that um, Assange should at least be returned to Australia uh, back in December to where they are now, I, I've, I would hope that if, if uh, Mr. Carr still has any influence whatsoever in the Australian government, that he's leveraging it in a way that is significantly less diplomatic than he does in the piece that we're discussing right now. He's awfully polite. Yeah. You know, another thing, I think this uh, the Assange, this Assange case is one of many things that has really blatantly demonstrated recently that the U.S. empire's vassals have no sovereignty, not Canada, not Australia and not a measly country in the EU has any sovereignty at all. If you recall, right around the time that they nabbed, uh, that they were pushing to take uh, Assange away, there was a young British boy who got hit and killed by, on a bicycle by a U.S. Who, person who turned out to be State Department or CIA or something later on. The, the Brits said, hey, will you send her back for, 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 uh, you know, for a trial? And the U.S. said, nah, not happening. And at the same time, the U.S. was saying, send uh, Assange over. And the Brits were like, yes, sir, we are doing it right away, sir. I mean, they just look like chumps. So it's so obvious now that um, there's just like no shame in the game of the U.S. empire. We're the empire and you all are nobodies. And the leaders of these countries are happy to humiliate and degrade themselves at the feet of the empire now. I, there's that element to it. There's also, I get the feeling, and then you can let me know if I'm on way off base on this or not. Um, but that if it wasn't the U.S., if the U.S. didn't have the Espionage Act of 1917, we would have seen the U.K. try to work their uh, their states, their official secrets act into some sort of, of method of prosecution for Julian Assange. Or Australia would have had an obscure and archaic law in the books that they get. So I, I kind of get the feeling that any of the Five Eyes countries could be the, the host prosecuting country of Julian Assange if they had already had a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And that because the U.S. has the Espionage Act laying around there, even though we already got rid of the Sedition Act, which is technically what they would be trying to charge him under anyway, um, <clears throat> that that's the method of prosecution by by which they went. Um, 
But it's true. I mean, because to me, it's it's the the Five Eyes intelligence sharing apparatus and central banks are always going to be around. Individual presidents or you know world leaders are basically interchangeable at this point. But as long as the unelected bureaucracy maintains its grip on what it wants reality to be, that's what all that they're after. Um, but I do I do largely agree overall with, with what you're saying. Oh, yeah. William Astor writes, the worst crime you can commit in the eyes of the powerful is to embarrass them and to reveal their crimes. That is what Julian Assange did most notably about U.S. war crimes in Iraq. And that is why he is being hounded and punished. Assange is being made to suffer and suffer greatly. He is because he spoke truth about the powerful to the powerless. Steve. It's, I mean, it's unequivocally true. There are so many different countries and so many different individuals have been able to maintain some level of closure or recompense from uh, war crimes that were committed against them or crimes of waste, fraud, or abuse that were committed against them because of WikiLeaks. And it's not just the United States regime that WikiLeaks is exposed. It's, again, it's, it's countries all over the world. I think that uh, when WikiLeaks published information, on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, when they showed the world what was in the TPP, that was before the the DNC leaks, before the Podesta emails, before even Vault 7, which we, I don't Vault know. Vault 7 was another been, big one, too. I don't know if you guys have been on top of the Joshua Schulte trial, but that's ongoing right now. Um, and, and it's insane. Um, but uh, <clears throat> the, before any of these things happened, the TPP got released. And that was the corporate courts that was you know the the initial um basically like new global governance we had, uh, version 1.0 and that in and of itself i believe was was the beyond the pale release up to that point and that's what got the cross coordination between all of the imf countries <laughs> to make sure that julian assange wasn't going out of the ecuadorian embassy in anything but handcuffs and he also writes, if you're a journalist, and this is the key, if you're a journalist looking to make a difference to shed light in dark corners, do you dare take on the U.S. government and national security state given its persecution of Assange? And that's the real deal here. And that is, this is not just about Julian Assange. At a time when people can access all kinds of stuff um, via, um, you know, uh, whether it's hacking or people who are on the inside handing out things that they think are important, they want to make sure— now they want to pass laws that even if data gets out that would condemn the powerful for their war, war, war crimes you or crimes, you can be persecuted just for reporting on it. You can be reper- persecuted just for printing it, et cetera. Steve. Yeah, well, it, they, they're, they're taking it a step beyond that with a couple of other bills. So they're trying to make it a crime to share uh, online. Just if you were to retweet, if I were to retweet something that you wrote, and they could say that it had national security information in it or something that, that was in the national interest, that nice little all-encompassing you know, phrase right there, uh, then, then I would be liable for prosecution for sharing information it, because it falls under the rubric of disseminating uh, mis, dis, or malinformation or helping aid or abet terrorism. And that's there's, it's always about who gets to see what information it's not about whether or not it's the truth with uh with what they're trying to do in terms of shutting down traditional investigative journalism 
One allows them to create a media space where they can do controlled releases of information that look like leaks or look like whistleblowing. And then the reality is it's a you know purely ideological attack or political partisan attack on an opponent or on a perceived enemy. And that's what the future of investigative journalism is going to be going forward. It'll be like that in native advertising. And, and I'll take it one further. They go from, okay, WikiLeaks and Assange to, you know how if you have an anti-war protest, oftentimes, or anti-imperialist process to protest, the mainstream media won't cover it. Well, they can say, look, that anti-war protest is destabilizing to the country, whatever. Covering that protest is, can now be a chargeable offense. All they have to say is that protest is destabilizing or it was started by Russian bots like you and I, of course, you know, we're Russian bots or something like that. And now you, they, they can change it and, and I suspect may intend on changing the laws or, or shall we say enforcing the laws in a manner that says they can determine what you can cover and what you can't cover and prosecute you. At the same time, MSNBC can cover it if they want to. Yeah, and we've seen that bear out in terms of how YouTube has picked winners and losers on who gets to say what about what thing, when and where. Um, we've had friends that have had videos removed from YouTube where they're showing, where all they're doing is showing the mainstream coverage of it just to acknowledge that it's taken place to then move on. So it's never, again, it's it's not about... It's not about whether or not the information is real. It's who gets to hear it, who gets to say it, and how it gets to be disseminated. You can you can cover uh, a whole lot of of truth over with you know some flowery words or some nice Mister X, and you need a a you know um, ad agency represented broadcaster in order to be able to do that. The problem that they have with me in New Garland is that we're not. We're not being incentivized to lie on their behalf. We we get uh, we get our compensation through the people who watch our shows, and, and they're, they're paying us to to tell them the truth, whether or not they enjoy it, right? <laughs> whether they like, why, whether they want to hear what the truth is or not. I know you've been following it. What's happening with the latest with Assange? What's the, you know we know Priti Patel made a decision. What are the options now? What happens next in the Assange case? There's a, a last-minute opportunity for the legal team to appeal. By all accounts, they're going to try to do that. Um, but after that, Pretty Patel sets a date, and he gets extradited to uh, the Alexandria Detention Center uh, over there, well, kind of by you. Any kind of a timeline now? What is it? I think it from that was like a thirty-day, a thirty-day decision time, or thirty days to appeal for Assange after the decision was made by Patel, right? Yeah, and we're a little, a uh, little less than a week into that, so there's about three, three and a half weeks for them to put forward some sort of appeal in the interstitial time. I don't know how much time we have left on the show, but um, Mike Pompeo is supposed to go to Spain. Or he's been summoned to Spain, whether or not he actually appears is uh, another question. Um, but if they can get a conclusion in the UC Global case before the Assange legal team has to submit an appeal, that would go uh, a long way in terms of public opinion 
<laughs> towards moving the needle back in Julian's direction when the CIA is openly saying, yeah, we had fantasies about murdering him in a London you know, shootout or we're trying to kidnap him from the embassy and we're spying on literally everything he did. It, it does kind of shift opinion a little bit. I cannot imagine in any court, and I've spent a lot of time in my life in court, I cannot imagine any court wherein the prosecution could admit that they spied on the lawyers of the defense and that case wouldn't get thrown out. I can't imagine where well, they could come out. Yeah, what happened? Well, we had cameras and everything, and we were, uh, we, were, we were spying on the defense attorneys the whole time. There is no place where that case doesn't get thrown out other than in the Assange case. Steve, thanks a lot. Uh, where can everybody find you, Steve? Uh, Roxanne.com slash slow news day or Roxanne.com slash AM wake up. Uh, don't forget Rockfin.com forward slash Garland Nixon because I'm on Rockfin too. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The People's Dispatch has a piece entitled, China Doubles Down on Vision with Russia. The West's quote-unquote information war and its distorted projection of the China-Russia relationship in the context of the Ukraine crisis is fraught with consequences for the emerging world order. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, so the article continues the most animating template of the West's information war lately against Russia is, perhaps, its distorted projection of the China-Russia relationship in the context of the Ukraine crisis. This dubious enterprise has practical implications for the end game in Ukraine and the West's efforts to erase Russia and the U.S.'s struggle with China. Above all, it is fraught with consequences for the emerging war. World order. Your thoughts, KJ? No. Well, essentially, what is being said here is that Ukraine is the beginning of the end of U.S. global hegemony. Uh, that is the end game, and part of that has to do with the U.S.'s uh, incredible capacity to wage hybrid war. Among them, uh, economic warfare. And that we can see has already been eroded when 160 countries did not join U.S. sanctions against Russia. Uh, and now uh, China and the BRICS are working towards uh, creating uh, a separate financial system so that they will not be subjected to the same kind of financial blackmail and enclosure and supply chain uh, uh, block forming. You know, what's interesting, um, KJ, is <clears throat> I was reading that in Brussels, there's 70,000 people in the streets angry over, uh, legitimately angry over the um, economic problems they're having. Obviously, a big part of it's the Russia sanction. There's a big rail strike going on that may be extended in the UK. There's, you know, unrest breaking out all over due to the blowback from these sanctions. And meanwhile, the EU leaders are considering a seventh round of sanctions. 
it seems to me that Russia and China and the other uh, uh, nations of the world that have legitimately been oppressed by the U.S. empire, they don't have to do anything. All they have to do is kind of get out of the way. It's amazing to watch these uh, inept Western leaders just destroy their own economies. Absolutely. And it should also point out that these so-called Western democracies are hardly that in the in the sense that they are completely unresponsive to the needs and the desires of their people. This has been building at least since 2008 after the global financial crash. But clearly, uh, they're not getting the message. Uh, people in the streets, uh, entire suburbs going up in, you know, in chaos and, and, and things being burned down. And still they perpetuate uh, following their quizzling line of doing whatever the United States wants them to do. This is a very, very bad uh, approach uh, to governance. And, uh, and it's astounding. It's astounding that these well-educated, quote unquote, leaders uh, of the global West are not capable of understanding what they're doing. They go on in this piece to point out that based upon the June 15th phone call and the readout from the phone call is that the relationship between China and Russia is based on a high degree of trust. It's not buffeted by the current events or the turbulence and that also that China and Russia have no choice but to jointly resist NATO's all-around suppression through close strategic coordination and further maintain the balance of global of the global strategic situation. So it 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 really seems as though these are two leaders with uh, very similar worldviews and an understanding of history and the impact that their failure to understand this history could have on both of their countries. Yes, absolutely. So they both have each other's backs. They have the same worldviews. They understand the world historic moment objectively and clearly, and they have the same interests. And clearly, the U.S. attempts, if the U.S. had been serious about trying to uh, take down China and Russia, it would have not forced them into an alliance with each other. This is what Kissinger is pointing out. But contrary to their own best uh, strategies, they have uh, done exactly the opposite of what they should have been doing if they had been uh, even remotely, uh, you know, calculating on a pragmatic basis. This speaks once again to the lack of insight, the lack of strategic thinking. And the fact is that the China-Russia relationship is extraordinarily stable. It's been building for about two decades. And what this has shown is that it will withstand stresses, strains, and tactics to divide. And that presages, uh, as we've been saying in this show many times, uh, the foundation of a global multipolar system. You mentioned Henry Kissinger, and he is referenced in this piece. They say Kissinger, who is responsible for the hypothesis of the U.S.-Russia-China triangle in Cold War history, recently made a pitch to invoke the specter of a permanent alliance between Russia and China to give shock therapy to the Western audience over their craving to isolate Russia from Europe. 
Uh, Kissinger advised Kiev to make territorial concessions to Moscow. And it's interesting to me how it it, it seems, I, I could be way off on this, and please correct me if I am, that a lot of analysts ignored Kissinger when he spoke at Davos and his message here, because he was contradicting the standard narrative, Kissinger seems to have been dismissed here, where we were saying on this show, for somebody like Henry Kissinger to be making these types of observations speaks volumes. And a lot of people see Kissinger as this neocon right wing. Yeah, but I remember very clearly uh, Hillary Clinton saying that one of her strongest advisors was Henry Kissinger. Well, I think, um, you know, uh, Clinton should have really listened to Kissinger because when Kissinger and Chomsky are saying the same thing, I think people should pay attention, take notice. But I will disagree that Kissinger is a neocon. He's a realist. And so he's an earlier generation of foreign policy okay. uh, uh, leadership. Uh, and the realists, uh, for all their faults, still believe in material reality, and they believe in using practical means, including negotiation, to reach those ends. The neocons are ideologues. They are untethered from reality. They're so caught up in their hubris that they cannot understand that the world is no longer their, their oyster. And so this is the core contradiction. So will they listen to Kissinger? Would they listen to him? Clearly, that's not the case. Kissinger warned over two years ago that we were at the foothills of a cold war. We are right now in the summits and, you know, we're at high altitude and nobody is, uh, you know, taking any effort to de-escalate. And this is the tragedy and the farce that we are currently facing. Global Times talks about the new BRICS system, but, you know, you can look at BRICS, you can look at the G8, and it appears that certainly there's a new um, economic system that's being born and that there, these are some of the uh, coalitions. Your thoughts on the, on the new BRICS and, and G8? Well, I mean, essentially the U.S economy is propped up by the U.S.'s exorbitant privilege as the global reserve currency. This has allowed it to abuse its power through, uh, you know, sanctions and secondary sanctions and, and now the enclosure of supply chains. Essentially, uh, what is going on is, you know, other countries sell the U.S. valuable commodities. The U.S. exchanges this for paper treasuries that it prints out at will uh, because this, there is this demand for dollars. Uh, the U.S. exports debt while other countries export things to the United States. This works as long as there is demand for dollars, as long as the credit is trustworthy. Credit uh, is from the Latin credere, which means trust or at the very least, it has to be backed up by uh, force. And the backstop for U.S. credit has always been military force. As the demand dies uh, because the overuse of sanctions, as, uh, uh, which pushes de-dollarization, and as trust diminishes, uh, the U.S. becomes more and more weaker. And the more money that it prints to cover up these contradictions, at this point now, it is, you know, just... Uh, you know, adding flames to inflation. So at the end of the day, uh, the U.S.'s hegemonic self-interest 
uh, is what is forcing other countries to create a new financial system. And this heralds, uh, as it does in many other er areas, the end of U.S. hegemony, in particular the Bretton Woods and Bretton Woods-related systems that allowed the U.S. Uh, global dominance uh, since the end of World War II. And, and to your point, this Global Times piece states, none of the BRICS countries has joined the Western economic sanctions against Russia. The reason why the BRICS countries, apart from Russia, all refuse to join such sanctions is because they share the same antipathy to unilateral sanctions. And then they also say that it's now crystal clear that the Western powers safeguard their own hegemonic self-interest through sanctions with no regard for the interests of these emerging countries. So what do you see coming out of Thursday's meeting uh, other than uh, is this going to be similar to Biden's uh, summit of some of the Americas? I mean, is what, what is he what's he going to come out of this with? I think he's going to come out with empty hands, very little. Uh, they're going to try and spin this, as they always do, in some kind of rhetorical fashion for the press. But uh, ultimately, it is going to look very, very weak. There's going to be some kind of weak gruel that has been uh, stirred up and, uh, and distributed, uh, and it won't mean much. And in the meantime, we see the failure on multiple fronts. We see the dissipation on multiple fronts. Uh, you know, as the line goes, you know, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. I think that's what we're seeing right now. Things fall apart. That's, a, that's the title of the, of the book by Chinua Achebe, if I pronounce his name correctly. I, I think you're right. And I think what we're looking at is um, the it's just a natural alliance when you have three superpowers. I mean, this is, there's no way around it. You have three world powers and one of them goes after the other two. Of course, the other two are going to go. I mean, it's, it's the idea that the neocons couldn't see this coming in any kind of way uh, speaks to their uh, absurd view of the world. It's as though they never watched the movie The Godfather. How about that? <laughs> KJ, no. As always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 